Hey, it's Drex from This Week Health Cyber and Risk Community, and I want to invite you to our next webinar. It's going to focus on what else? Defending health data. I'll be chatting with experts from Rubrik and Microsoft. Register right now at thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. That's all one string, R-U-B-R-I-K webinar, thisweekhealth.com slash rubric webinar. See you online soon. Today on This Week Health. It's frustrating when you as a patient can't get something that your doctor has prescribed for you or thinks that you need. And there's also this inherent lag that's built into the therapy in, in something like cancer treatment, radiation treatment, time is of the essence. So anything we can do to reduce the friction, remove that lag and still get appropriate therapies to our patients, I'm all for it. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and today we're joined by Colin Bannis, the Chief Medical Officer for Dr. First, and we've got a lot of news to talk about. Good morning, Colin. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Bill. Good to see you again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. You did get a chance to go to UGM. I'm curious, what was your takeaways from UGM? UGM is always fun. Madison is a, is a great city, and it's a nice place to get a lot of connections with colleagues and partners of ours at Dr. First. So we had a number of events right off campus, a couple of dinners, and it was good energy. It's a great event. I have not made it up there the last couple of last couple of years. I don't know, maybe sometime in the future, we will do that. We've got a lot of news today. Let's see, we got the Signify Health CVS thing. We could talk about that. We've got some things on Apple Watch, some NIH funded studies. We've got some prior authorization information or work that's going on. I want to talk to you about specifically. And then uh, always, there's always something to talk about in cybersecurity, isn't there? It feels yeah. that way. Yes, there is. Let's start with the Signify Health and CVS acquisition. So this is a proposed acquisition. CVS has stated as their strategy, they are looking to focus on three pillars, primary care, home health, and managed service organizations. So they're looking to grow quickly in those three areas. This actually does check two of those boxes. It's an $8 billion acquisition. And there was a couple of players in the running for this. It wasn't just CVS. You had Amazon going for it. And you also had United Healthcare. It's not like deep pockets weren't going after this. CVS won this bid. $8 billion is a pretty sizable bet. They believe strongly that the way healthcare gets acquired is going to change. In fact, let me just give you a couple of excerpts here. So, and I'm just going to pull out the, the I think the key pieces here, because we, we do a half hour news show. We'll just go right to it. So this from the press release, this acquisition will enhance our connection to consumers in the home and enable providers to better address patient needs as we work to redefine the healthcare experience. So that's what they're after to re redefine the healthcare experience. Signify Health, for their part, has this on their website. Our reach into the home, community, and cross sites of care enables holistic support of individuals. And I think this is a key phrase, 
lessening dependence on facility-centric care and preventing adverse events. And finally, I pull this from a Fierce Healthcare article, which is uh, that we're looking at. Signify is planning to be in two and a half million homes this year and joining up with CVS enables them to accelerate that push. I guess my, as I'm reading this, my question to you is, as you hear this strategy, home-based care, primary care, and MSO, is this just more of the same? A lot of healthcare providers will hear this and go, yeah, yeah, we heard this. Amazon's coming in, United's coming in. Walmart's coming. We've heard this before. CVS is now coming. I mean, we've heard this before and nothing really changes. I mean, United is a significant healthcare provider at this point. This moves CVS in that direction as well. Does this change things or is this just more of the of the same? I would challenge that assumption by existing providers that nothing really changes. I think it's changing all around us, actually. And it's sort of like testing the trying to penetrate the barrier and eventually you're going to break through and you're going to flip the paradigm. So I actually do think this is a big deal. The CVS is building a sort of a nice, a very nice little vertical here and they're taking away some of the more profitable services from traditional brick and mortar. So if you look at the, the younger generation right now, they are already accessing these types of services, whether it's minute clinic, whether it's telehealth, niche kind of services that you can get on your app. And these are, of course, the future consumers of tomorrow for healthcare. This is just, to me, this is a big deal because CVS is doubling down on meeting the patient where they want to be met rather than traditional brick and mortar. And I've heard you say this on your show before, how is CVS going to win in some of these markets? Well, your, your first joke was always parking, which, which is dead on, but now it's, Hey, I don't even have to look for parking because you're coming to my house and what's going to happen. And it's, I think it's inevitable and maybe not necessarily a bad thing, but it's going to be a financial hit to health systems is they're going to be left with a really high dollar care, the sickest of the sick. Whereas the other, the stuff that we could call the cream, if you will, is going to get scooped up by these non-traditional players, the Amazons, Uniteds, and now the CVSs. I think it's a big deal. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the mistake that gets made is people look at it and say, hey, they're not coming after our existing business. And they're maybe not coming after your existing business. How things change, and we have the Kodak example, and we have the Netflix example, and, and the, those kinds of things. But even Netflix, it's kind of funny. So Netflix... Blockbuster misses the move and Netflix pops in. And now you're seeing Netflix struggle because the game, what happens is it's not about where the game is now. It's about where is the game going to be in three years or five years? And Netflix was right. It was streaming and, and they got there first and whatnot. Now you have these big players coming in and saying, Hey, we could do streaming. Not only that, we're going to do streaming and we're going to do bundling because we have all these other assets and now Netflix is sitting there going, oh my gosh, we don't own the content. We can't really do this bundling thing. And they're struggling to exist in the new space. I think healthcare is the same way. They really do $8 billion significant bet. And you're seeing United Healthcare make these same kind of bets. They're looking at it going, all right, how is healthcare going to be delivered in three to five years? Are we going to have 
an onslaught of sensors and passive sensors at that. And they're going to be, you know, scattered throughout the home. And instead of having these services be delivered in person, a lot of them are going to be delivered uh, remotely via telehealth. And we're going to have to have capabilities of going into the home and delivering care into the home. And uh, I, I think they see very clearly, actually, these players, Amazon, United, and, uh, and definitely CVS. Walmart has a little different view of things. I think still, I think they're still, Walmart has sort of a brick and mortar kind of approach. But again, their brick and mortar approach is, I think, going to revolutionize rural healthcare. And so each player has this view of what healthcare is going to be. I wonder if traditional brick and mortar healthcare providers have a vision of what healthcare is going to be, or if they're just playing defense. Yeah, it feels like they're just playing defense, except for maybe some of the larger health systems that tend to be a little bit more innovative or have a little bit more leeway to experiment with some of these things. But I know where I live, I still live in central Virginia. I haven't seen massive innovation or changes in the, the care paradigm for any of the brick and mortar that, you know, that I frequent or that I still interact with. So I, I think that I think the comment of playing defense is spot on. I want to take a moment and share our next webinar, Patient Room Next, Improving Care Efficiency. The patient room is evolving inside and outside of the four walls of your health system. What is coming next to improve clinical effectiveness through technology? with guests from health systems from around the country. We will discuss machine vision, ambient listening, AI, care companions, and much more. Before the webinar, check out the briefing campaigns being released on our channel now as we speak, conversations with leaders from Monument Health, Intermountain Healthcare, and, and they're just gonna build the excitement for this webinar conversation we're having on September 29th. You can find these episodes and register for the webinar at our website, thisweekhealth.com. Just look at the top right-hand corner. We have upcoming webinars right there in the top right. So love to have you join us. Please check it out. Now back to our show. Well, let's take a look. NIH-funded study to test if Apple Watch can prevent strokes, limit blood thinners. So this is, this is interesting. I like to pull the medical stories, and you recommended some of these stories as well for our conversation. Researchers at Northwestern University and John Hopkins University plan to study if an Apple Watch app can help prevent strokes. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, a National Institute of Health division, awarded a $37 million grant for researchers to test whether Apple Watches can be used as part of the strategy to cut down on the use of blood thinners, prevent strokes from AFib. American Heart Association, John Hopkins, Stanford, and University of California, San Francisco are also partners on the study. AFib is the most common heart rhythm disorder in adults affecting two and a half to 5 million Americans. The number is estimated to grow to 12.1 million by 2030 worldwide. The estimated number of individuals with AFib in 2010 was 33.5 million. This is an example of those monitors. My mother went into the doctor and they caught AFib and whatnot. And then my sister just went out and bought her an Apple watch. Like we're, we're going, this is going to be how we're going to track this. The Apple watch is interesting. It's an expensive device. It's not a cheap device, but we're seeing more and more applications of how they're going to participate in healthcare. What are your thoughts on this study? Yeah, this is a perfect segue from what we were just talking about in terms of sensors, as you mentioned, but the real importance of this study is that 
forever and ever, including my training, when we get someone with AFib, we put them on blood thinners and it's sort of indefinite. And of course, that's not without risk itself. And as blood thinner, as pharmaceuticals have gotten better, some of those blood thinners, while safer, are also very, very expensive. And what this study is seeking to do is to say, hey, your risk of stroke is really increased after an episode of AFib or after a prolonged episode of AFib. But a lot of times that that rhythm corrects itself or, or medications help get you back into the normal rhythm and you stay there. And so could we limit our blood thinner usage to just these high risk times? And then once the, once the watch detects that you're sort of back to normal and enough time has passed, we'll take you back off the blood thinners. And so you're really reducing your risk of you know adverse bleeding and things like that from being on excessive blood thinners. So I actually think this has the potential to be a game changer in terms of the way that we treat AFib, which is, as you rattled off, is extremely common. Um, so I really, really enjoyed this study. And I have an Apple Watch. I've listened to your comments on Apple and what they're actually doing around the Apple Watch. And I think it's spot on. It's I'm not sure that they really want to revolutionize healthcare as much as they want to get you to buy more iOS devices. But be that as it may, I do think this is the potential to be a game changer for a very common and lethal condition. Yeah. And people are going to say, why aren't you commenting on the Apple event? Because there's an Apple event today at, uh, I don't know if it's 10 o'clock Eastern or whatever. And so we're recording on Wednesday, 10 a.m. Pacific time today, there's an Apple event. And typically, you know, have Tim Cook come out and say how committed to healthcare they are. And actually they, they released like an 80 page document on their healthcare strategy not too long ago. And it was right before I went on vacation. I should go back and do a series on it because it's kind of, kind of a fascinating document. So we'll see. So if people are wondering, Hey, why didn't you comment on the Apple event? Because we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> so we <won't. laughs> as, as soon as we see it, we will comment on it. Let's see, what's the next story? Next story, HL7 Codex pilot to test prior authorizations in oncology. This is always interesting. So this becomes an interoperability story. The collaboration will use Fire Accelerator Codex to enable automation between payers and providers with the goal of improving access to radiation treatment for cancer patients. This is a story that you pulled out and Prior authorizations is sort of the holy grail of interoperability because it's such a, from an experience standpoint, I could speak to it pretty strongly. It's such a dissatisfier, not probably not only for patients, but also for providers, isn't it? Yeah. It's friction for everybody involved. It's frustrating when you as a patient can't get something that your doctor has prescribed for you or thinks that you need. And there's also this inherent lag that's built into the therapy in, in something with like cancer treatment, radiation treatment, time is of the essence. So anything we can do to reduce the friction, remove that lag and still get appropriate therapies to our patients, I'm all for it. And I think the term holy grail of interoperability is spot on. Is it the movement of data that slows this down or is it the bureaucracy and the policies that slows this down? I'd say it's 80% bureaucracy, 20% data but you know a lot of this stuff is still occurring on printed paper and faxes and telephone calls and phone trees and things like that so maybe i'll maybe i'll adjust my answer to 50 50. and i think there are ways 
but it's 2022. There are ways to deliver this data, this information securely and appropriately so that we can get through these barriers of prior auth. And so maybe if we took down 50% of the barrier and we're still left with 50, that's still pretty massive progress in something is this important. Interesting. I was talking to a doctor and this was a special case, but he walked me through this process of going through the prior authorization. And he, he said, finally, he was on the phone for an hour. He finally got a doctor on the other end of the line and said, look, here's what's happening. Here's why the normal protocol doesn't work. And here's what I'm going to do. And the doctor said, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly what we should do. Now, if that was the first conversation, it would have been a I don't know, it would have been a five minute conversation and would have been done. Instead, he was on the phone for an hour trying to work his way to get somebody on the phone who could understand his clinical diagnosis and treatment plan. Yeah. That, so that's the bureaucracy, right? That's the phone tree, the paper faxes, the et cetera. I, I think we're so good at logistics for other things in the way that we consume. There's got to be a, a better mousetrap when it comes to prior authorization. So yeah, this one was... I've sat in on some of the Codex webinars and group calls. They're seeking to do this not only for oncology and radiation treatment, but also for traditional prior auth around medication and specialty pharmacy. So fingers crossed for success in this realm, because I think it'll be a game changer for providers and patients alike. Yeah. So let me just give a couple excerpts and then we'll move on to the next story. So payer prior authorization process often rely on manual inspections with no automation or standard health system interface. So we're going to have, if we're moving discrete data, we're going to be able to apply some, some technology to it, but no single organization can solve the endemic challenges of information sharing that requires extracting complex data from one system and inserting it into another system that uses a different database schema and different user interfaces in order to get accurate and fast results. So if people are wondering what we're talking about with this interoperability, that's essentially what we're talking about. Laying the ground, because it's it's not just getting the data out, because getting the data out has become a lot easier, but now you're transferring it across and you've got to put it in to the right, to the right places in the right format. So that's no small task. Laying the groundwork for how interoperability is expected to look, recent mandates, the 2020-20 Interoperability and Patient Access Funnel Rule and the 21st Century Cures Act hasten the speed of delivery via secure API that converts data into digestible information. And so essentially what we're looking at is a set of standards for how information is stored, how it's extracted, and how it's shared across the healthcare ecosystem. So that's, that is exciting work. Love what they're doing. Love what 21st Century Cures really has started in our industry. Yeah, well, what you're talking about is semantic interoperability, right? We've gotten decent at moving data from A to B. Maybe it's blob text. Maybe it's it's not immediately interpretable by the receiving system. And that's why this story was so relevant to what we do at Dr. First is because we have a role in semantic interoperability related to medication data making sure that it lands in the right way, in the right format, et cetera. And we have some technology around that space. And then also in our role as e-prescribing, we have a big role in prior auth. And we're constantly looking to improve the prior auth experience. So that's why I'm very interested in what Codex is doing. And I'm grateful that they're pushing into other prior auth friction points like radiation and other therapies. Fantastic. I love the fact that doctors 
at Dr. First are working on this problem because it's it's great. There's a lot of benefits on the other side of this. Gosh, security. I I feel like every week I talk about security. This one I think is interesting. It's uh, attackers targeting smaller healthcare organizations. It used to be we thought, well, our health system is so small. It was security by obscurity. It's like, we're so small, no one really notices us. <laughs> but at the end of the day, what's happening is that they're saying, hey, the bad actors are targeting smaller health systems for the very reasons that we think. Less security, less staff, less budget. And some of the findings from the report include this. The total number of breaches has steadily declined. That's a good that's good news from the peak of three three hundred and ninety-three to three sixty-seven in the first half of twenty twenty-one, three hundred and forty-four in the second half of twenty twenty-one, and three hundred and twenty-four in the first half of twenty twenty-two. Approximately twenty million individuals were affected by by a data breach in the first half of twenty twenty-two, a 10% drop compared to the previous six months, and a 28% drop from the first half of 2021. Healthcare providers represent 73% of total breaches. Business associate represents 15% and health plans represent 12%. Hacks associated with network servers declined from a peak of 67% in the first half of 2021 to 57% in the first half of 2022. EHR-related breaches increased from 0% in the first half of 2020 to almost 8 in 2022. And that's that's the crown jewels. So that should be very protected. That 0% should be the, should be the number. When it gets to 8%, that means they're getting to... Yeah. Uh, the system of record. That's a little, a little scary. There's a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. You're not a cybersecurity professional per se, but what are your thoughts on this? Well, it, it, it was exactly what you just did right there. I was reading the article and I said, Oh, it, they're actually going down. Like, and hey, maybe we're getting better at this and maybe, maybe we've really improved our cybersecurity posture as an industry. And then I got to that EHR zero to 8%. And I said, Oh, and I think that was, I think there was a very large breach I mentioned earlier in the article that was millions and millions of patient records that is probably responsible for that big jump there. But as I was reading it, I was wondering what your take would be. Is it a part of, hey, the big guys have gotten better at this and hardened their posture and the bad guys are giving up on those bigger targets and going to the smaller ones because we've gotten better? Or is it just... Is it like a swarm of locusts moving through the ether? They're going to get everything eventually. I went fly fishing last week. Fly fishing is a lot like cybersecurity in that the guide is telling me, I'm like, where should I fish? He goes, he said, fish are lazy. They're going to go to where the food is plentiful and it's easy. It's easy until, by the way, until the food is not plentiful, in which case they will work to go where they need to get to. And at this point in the bad actor situation they're just lazy fish i mean they don't have to do much they didn't have to do much for the last three to five years blast a, a health system with a bunch of emails set up a fake site where people would essentially give you their credentials and once they gave you their credentials you could get in and establish your foothold and then start working horizontally across the across the network so that was that was pretty easy that's been about five years What's happened, though, is most major health systems, this is a board-level conversation. They freed up money. I, most CISOs that I talked to from the large health systems, the large IDNs and the academic medical centers, they all got more money for cybersecurity specifically, and uh, which means more accountability. It's like 
hey, I don't want to end. I don't want to end up in this journal. I don't want to end up on our newspaper. So here's some more money. What else do you need? Let's make sure that we are we are protected now. This is a constant cat and mouse game. So the bad actors will get smarter. They will start to look for different ways to get in. But at the end of the day, the thing that concerns me the most, you see the EHR breaches, you mentioned it. I read it off here. We are in the process of trying to aggregate information in healthcare. And we really have to be careful when we're aggregating information because it becomes the store, right? The Fort Knox of our health system. And so we have these large aggregation platforms bringing all this data together. And I'm concerned that, hey, you don't have to breach 20 health systems. You can just breach one place and get all the information you're looking for. And maybe that's what's happening. Maybe they're they're planning their big heist of like Ocean's Eleven. They're planning to hit the Bellagio of healthcare data. I don't know. Yeah. The other thing I don't... I don't think we spend enough time talking about is the business continuity plans for when these things eventually happen. How are you going to continue to document? How are you going to continue to prescribe? How are you going to continue to do med rec? Because paper is not going to cut it anymore. So are there, are there platforms out there? Or are there solution vendors that we need to be including in our cybersecurity type bundle or posture, if you will? Just food for thought. Yeah. Well, business, I'm glad you brought up business continuity. I was talking to somebody this week and we were talking about business continuity and they were saying, yeah, well, we just fall back on paper. I'm like, how do you do imaging on paper? Like, how do you do your MRI on paper? And they just said, well, they go into a sort of a standalone mode. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, <laughs> at, at some point, if they can compromise those systems and take those systems down, now you're not able to do imaging. That's a scary position to be in. Yeah. All right. Last story. The thing I love about working with you, Colin, is you're a professional and we get through a lot of stories. Uh, <laughs> AI could help deliver greater success at birth. Once validated machine learning based labor risk scores could be used in clinical practice to monitor labor in real time and improve maternal care. New Mayo Clinic research shows. So you're the doctor. You recommended this story. I love uh, it. It's interesting to me. Because people are always asking me, it's like, yeah, AI is hype. It, I don't see where it's going to be used in healthcare. And we keep seeing these stories seep up. It's one at a time right now, but I think at some point the floodgates are going to open and we're going to see a lot of AI stories uh, improving care. So what, what's, the, what's the takeaway from this story? Yeah, I, I often comment that there's the AI hype of AI is going to cure cancer, Watson style, or... AI is going to cure sepsis. And you've seen how, how difficult that has proven to be over the past decade with lots of fits and starts. And then there's, there's AI that rather than trying to hit a home run, can we hit a single? Can we automate some things? Can we take some things off of the cognitive load of providers using AI in a safe way? And that's a lot of what Dr. First seeks to do in the medication space. I viewed this one as an in-between. I said, here's a, a great example of a certain population that we now have a lot of data points around and a lot of money at risk too with high risk maternity. And can we start to use smaller algorithms to figure out what is the best way to deliver this baby? The safest way the, is a routine delivery going to cut it or do we need to do a cesarean? Things like that. 
And so I said, you know what, this is that in-between step of the single and the home run. And the folks that are pulling this off have the juice to do it. So I like this story because I think, as you mentioned, you see these more and more often, and some of them are really outrageous claims, like I said before, of, of curing cancer. But it's the it's these that we're building on that are eventually going to insert themselves in traditional workflows and actually benefit the providers and the patients alike by giving them the data and the recommendations they need at the point of care. Yeah, this this is worth looking at. There's a this healthcare IT news story. Let me just read a little bit here. The use of the models could result in more individualized clinical decisions using the baseline characteristics of each patient. And they could also be, this could also be a tool to help remote physicians and midwives transfer rural or remote patients to the appropriate level of care. And then I love this next phrase. This is the first step in using algorithms and providing powerful guidance to physicians and midwives as they make critical decisions during the labor process. And I think that's what you're talking about. It's not AI is going to solve these things. It's, it's providing insights. It's providing guidance that clinicians and midwives can act upon. Yeah. AI is not replacing the clinician. It's augmenting. It's an extra set of insight during, during care. And so that was the, that was the big thing early on was, oh, AI can read an x-ray or a, a pathology slide just as good as a human. And not so much, but it can certainly help the work queue or help float more relevant things to the top to get those things looked at more acutely. So I've stopped saying artificial intelligence and started saying augmented or advanced intelligence, because I think that's a little less intimidating to the, to the human factor of healthcare. And it's a little bit more on the nose in terms of what we're really trying to accomplish with AI. Cool. All right. So uh, that's enough. I mean, we're at 30 minutes. That's about our thing. Is that a Virginia football behind you? It is. I am a UVA grad, class of 98. So UVA going to be good in football this year? It's hard to say. Brand new coach. They did win their first game against the Richmond. A real test is coming up this week with Illinois. So we'll see. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it is football season. It's a lot of fun. My daughter graduated from Baylor and I'm so glad she did because the other college teams I've rooted for were not that good. So rooting for <laughs> Baylor has been fun. <laughs> uh, hey, Colin, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. Love to do it. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.